Welcome back, friends, to Beyond the Sectors, your bi-weekly podcast all about the beyond world of author duo Kit Roca. My name is Chelsea. And I'm Anna. And today, friends, we are here to talk about the big one, about Beyond Ruin. This is the foursome book between Adrian Maddox, Scarlet Jade, and Dylan, or Doc, as he's sometimes referred to. Uh... Yeah, Anna, do you want to attempt to plot summarize this one for us? Okay, so in the previous books, we've seen uh, the duo of Doc and Mad circling around Scarlet and Jade. And in this book, they dramatically come together while explosive things happen in the in the uh, sectors. Uh, in fact, um, Sector 2 gets carbon bombed. Uh, which they all watch from the rooftops of Sector 4. And of course, it's extremely traumatic for a lot of our characters who are deeply tied to Sector 2. And there's so much politics in this book because what, you know, search and rescue, what next steps, war, so much. I think that's the best I can do because it's just so much. Yeah, there's just so much that happened, friends. But um, yes, as we said, by this point, we have seen our kind of central foursome skirting around each other um, in their various pairs. Jade and Scarlet are dating, are together. Adrian and Doc uh, have their own history together, but there is an undeniable chemistry between all four of them uh, and has been for a very long time. But of course, uh, in the background is all of these struggling and shifting loyalties we spend a large majority of this book in sector one, um, which not only kind of paves the way for the follow-up series that comes after this with Gideon Gideon's writers introducing us to some of those characters, but also really kind of um, lets us get yet another deep dive into a different sector than we are normally in. Sector one being the uh, quote like religious sector where Mad and his family come from. So we spent a lot of time in one, of course, and a lot of time in two, which just gives a lot of character time for these characters to, uh, we, we get to meet people who knew them before, people who have, who know them as when they're not okay. And then whenever we have people who know you from before you were okay, and they know they there's tea to spill. And with, mad we he's sort of been this sort of like tragic mysterious figure all along right we know there's something going on with him we know he's left his family seat but here we have like a guy asked like show him a tattoo of his mother and ask him to bless his wife uh (laughs) and so you really get like okay he is a religious figure to these people um and like and how much it freaks them out. So there's all that and happening in one and you're on one has a very different way of life than any of the other sectors, because, you know, we got our farm sectors that are run like corporations. We have the business drug Lords in five, who knows what Jim Jerrigan's really up to, but one is a religious state church and state are one. And there's this whole cult of service. Um, and I mean, they have literally, people who will die for the royal family. Uh, and so there's a lot of this uh, talking about people's where they belong. So you have uh, Dylan, who comes from Eden, who does not like to talk about his background. And we get to know exactly what he was up to in Eden 
that left him the broken man he is. Um, including, you know, he's this family, his mom cleaned houses in Eden and sacrificed like her life so he, she could push him to success. And he's like, shit, this world sucks. <laughs> because he ends up cleaning up all the messes for the people of sector one, uh, for, from Eden. Um, so there, so you have, okay, the prince of uh, sector one, this doctor from Eden who has a mysterious background. And then we have Jade's background start to unfold. We, we always knew that she was like se- meant to be second in command uh, in two before um, Sir, uh, Cyrus um, betrayed her. Um, but then we find out like, you know, she used to live in a goddamn mansion is how Scarlet sees it, right? And through all that, then we have Scarlet, who's a street rat from three and really feels that she doesn't, she can't run with these three. Um, and that's, I mean, that's such an amazing struggle of, I mean, I when I first read this book, I gotta be honest, I struggled with the relationship stuff because I was so into the plot. So I wanted, you know, like, I'm hospitals, tell me about those and building, you know, so I was all plot, 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 plot. And the relationship just sort of did it. So going back to read it and seeing this, like, foursome trying to fit together was really uh, way more. It, it, it pays off to read that again. Mm-hmm. And I, Yeah, I think this is maybe one of the most challenging books in the series in terms of I also kind of struggled with it the first time because there are so many different aspects of interpersonal like drama and conflict and dynamics between these four people between like the classism and financial stuff that Scarlett is struggling with to not only like Mad's position as the next in line to basically lead the sector but also the sector itself is in a very kind of interesting and odd place in terms of like the evolution of a religion and there are still people alive who remember the founding prophet but that won't always be the case and that's something that Matt is really struggling with and then all of the the deeply ingrained self-loathing that Doc has and Jade struggle for um, accepting her, not accepting her power. She has no problem accepting her position of power within the sector but accepting the balance that needs to occur between her power and her family unit, this foursome that's developing um, and it's the, because there's just there's so many moving pieces and so many moving pieces of the plot, I do think, like you said, it's worth reading this one more than once in order to really get all of the aspects. Yeah, because there's so many pieces, you know, like, um, Mad needs Scarlet to see, because she really sees him. So she, he point blank asks her to come into one with him because she's like she can puncture whenever he gets all stressed out and, he, she sees how he stressed he is about this whole religious thing. So basically, like, he reaches out and actually says, instead of, like, laughing it off, like he always says, I need someone who sees me, and grabs her. And at the same, But at the same time, they have all these little dynamics about, like, who's strong, who's broken, who is taking care of who. When you, and in the sex scenes, we often have Dylan calling the shots, but sort of being held a lot behind everything. Like, he... He's like, you do this, you do that. But he doesn't let people take care of him. And then they all blow up when they go, when Jade overworks. Because Jade is somebody who guilt gets to her, you know. 
and mission and challenge and pop. And does she have a right to be that leader? Absolutely. Is she like too many of the leaders going to get consumed by it? Yes. And they all come in instead of listening to her, they just like, hold on. And she reacts really terribly. And that's part of the, right? You just kind of, this is one of those books where maybe more than in any of the others, you just kind of want to force them all to sit down amongst all the chaos and just actually talk and listen to each other. Because Instead of walk from one sector to the other in the middle of the night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, and because they're so, they've known each other so long and have been doing this dance around each other for so long, when the time comes that they decide to hurt each other and when, you know, Dylan goes off on everybody because of the way they treated, you know, Jade and Mad for coming to her defense. And they all just literally kind of go for those softest, weakest, tenderest parts. And it takes something real. Like, I think this is one of the first major times that it takes something this external to really force people to reconcile or to come to the realization that they're being uh, dumb, basically. And they're not listening and communicating in the way that they know they need to. Because at this point, they've all seen so many different relationship shapes and family types all kind of work out in the various ways that they need to work out that they know it's possible. Right. And they really get to be scrambled because they have all these relationships where like they're mediating for each other and they end up having to like come face to face in those relationships. So um, yeah, Jade and Mad have to have this heart to heart and <laughs> almost die. And you have, you know, Doc and Scarlet like fight it out because they always have this like weariness to each other. Um, because, you know, there's this whole thing where like Mad and, and Dylan have this little dynamic where like they're always imagining the other couple without them being there and they, they get off on how wrong that is and then they get off on having it actually happen. But they're sort of like, I'm only with you so you can get to this other person happens. Yeah. So they have to sort all of those stuff out. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to sort out. And that is a particularly big thing for Scarlett because she feels so um, basically unworthy. She feels that, you know, because of Jade's training, uh, Doc's upbringing and Mad's, you know, place within his own community, she's really kind of the odd person out. And so she struggles very deeply with the idea that the only reason she's there is to somehow facilitate the connection between all these other people. And it's not really her that they like. It's just this kind of facilitation that she can provide to Jade or between the two of them or what have you. And that of that's kind of her thing to get over and accept that that's not how the actual dynamic is playing out, which is very interesting but it just adds to the kind of swirl of things happening and it's interesting i mean it's been an ongoing thing in the books that you're not you can't be everything to one person that you need more people that you need friends that you need people who bring out different parts of you that it's okay that you can love someone who doesn't fulfill every little piece of you because it took you're free to love other people and in this dynamic they are struggling with that very thing four times because they're, you know, they, they sort of, they're feeling like, well, I've just fit this little piece. So maybe you won't miss me so much if I leave and they have to sort of validate, no, we love all of us <laughs> and we all fit together. We're better when we're together. Um, and I think 
I, I, like, and I, I've debated how successful is it? I think it's, it was successful enough the first time I read it. And then it was, it really worked for me this, this time. Yeah, I do think it's, I do think it's one that because there's a, there's a lot of sex between all four of them, but because of the way that Brie and Donna are writing it, there are a lot of very important emotional beats that occur when that happens. And so it's a very almost like detail heavy book in terms of the emotional arcs of the relationship. So they are, they need to be read super closely, which I almost think is just kind of a factor of like the more people you add into any given relationship, the more complex the communication dynamics become and all of that. And the more all of those things need to be kind of teased out and spread out. So I really think it accomplishes it in terms of that. My only kind of not even worry, but like the only, my only thing about this book is that so much is happening that between the plot and the relationship, you almost have to read it more than once. Right. Because I mean, I know I read it like 10,000 miles an hour the first Mm -hmm. time. Like you were just saying all plot because it's so well paced. It's so good. It's so enthralling. It's And there's assassination attempts and, and you're moving from, and there's, so much geography in this book. They're like driving across and through and blah. And so there's so much movement, not just, and so God bless them how they choreograph the bed scenes because that had a lot of important things happening about who's touching whom and why it's happening. But that was also happening in the global plot. It was mirroring this global plot that's happening. Um, So I know I read it too quickly. I just did. I didn't linger over the sex scenes the way that the story needed me to. Um, And, you know, but there's still things that always resonate. Um, Like Jade unveiling her real name uh, to them. And the heartbreak that Scarlett feels and that Jade feels at the fact that she didn't share that with her when they were together. And just sort of like... um, when they were just a solo couple, you know, so there's, there's all this sort of like the importance of, of including and opening and those, that armor that we build around us and, um, and how hard it can be to put it down. Um, and for her to figure out who she really wants to be. And if that person that she kept in that vault actually exists, you know, and I'm glad that you brought that up. I think that the revelation of Jade and Joyotti's like, real name is is really impactful and important in this book because while it's not the first instance we've seen of people taking nicknames or different names or kind of adapting new identities it's the first time that that's not only been like um really kind of racially involved but also deeply um central to the way that this character has crafted her self-identity and the way that that needs to shift over the course of the novel and the way that these other three people help to facilitate that happening. Um, so it's really beautiful, not only learning the story of her mother giving her that name and kind of the ownership and possession and sadness that came with also having to embody this other name, having to kind of hide her real self beneath, beneath this name Jade and this crafted kind of identity and how deeply that becomes entrenched for her and something she struggles to let go right, of. Right, because she struggles to name her desires and her wants and all that because of that same sector to uh mind that they have and uh and then you know like we have dylan who is doc we have matt who is adrian and 
Scarlet's only the one who's only Scarlet. Um, but she herself has armor. She has the street kid armor. And the you know, you, you get to, we get to devil into her childhood by going back and hanging out, clearing tunnels with Riff and talking about, you know, he's sort of like, You've always been amazing kind of stuff. Um so the, there's all that persona and the intentional and unintentional personas that we take on and how that affects our lives. Yeah, there's some really beautiful parallels between, between the story we learned of kind of what what Mad calls, you know, the death of Adrian, you know, Reyes and, and how that person has died through trauma and Mad has been reborn. And at the same time, you know, the death of Adrian is kind of paired with this rebirth or, you know, resurrection of uh, Joyoti as Jade's real name. And so there's this really kind of beautiful mirroring that takes place specifically between Mad and Joyoti towards the end when she really kind of chooses that as her name and chooses to embody that just in terms how, of how impactful that is for both of their identities in this new life that they are pursuing as war is at their doorstep, is ongoing, yep. is ready to that go. Has actually started, you know. Um, yeah. Um and there's so many of those uh, are we allowed to feel these feelings conversations in the book because not only are they struggling with these feelings, but Avery struggling with these feelings. Avery who gets rescued from being locked in an actual safe by, by her uh, lover, uh, patron. And she has to try to untangle those feelings. The fact that she loved this man. And it was, is it okay that she loved this man and that she's grieving this man? And especially the longer she is out of two and she's starting to see that the lies she's been told about war and about all those places and, and how painful it is for her to try to like feel her feelings while she knows that they're feelings that are, that are hurtful to other people, right? That she doesn't feel comfortable in such a four. Um, you know, she wants to feel comfortable in such a four for her sister but she feels like she's doing everything wrong and that she's feeling everything wrong. Um, and, you know, so that's such an interesting story to to parallel with these four who are struggling to feel their feelings and and figure out who they really are and what they really want. And there's, there's so many questions for um, both Lex as uh, the series goes on in terms of her sister's future within the gang and within this community, but also the continued iterations of this theme that we've been seeing of people getting to choose what a happy ending looks like or get to choose the way in which they embrace their power or the way that they choose to fight or defend or contribute to the community. And there's a lot of really interesting parallels between Jade taking over as you know, the leader basically of Sector 2 as also at the same time Six is kind of coming up as the leader of Sector 3 and they're each allowed, and you know, Jade has these basically secret boarding houses for girls that she's rescuing that are now in one and so there's just all these continuing overlaps of the way that people are exercising their power in this kind of war that's going to be coming up. Right, that moment where they walk into one and they know who Jade is because they're, they're like, oh, Lady Jade. Yeah. The uh, one in the moment in the meeting where she's like, oh, also, I happen to own like 60% of, of basically everything. 
Yeah, I, I own all the farms. Right. <laughs> I own all the food. All the food is mine. I own all of it. Um, I can have some leverage here. Um, <laughs> yeah, because that's such a great moment because we have these people who keep trying to protect her and coddle her and out of love. They want to love her and protect her because she's been so hurt. And she's sort of like, um, I have some agency here. And I've been doing all sorts of stuff I guess I wasn't telling you about. Yet again, the O'Kane's <laughs> learning the lesson of trusting each other to have agency and to set boundaries. All of those favorite things we love to see them doing. But okay, do we want to go ahead and kind of transition to talking sure. about the plot like more kind of specifically? Because like we've said... There are a lot of things that are happening in this book in terms of plot development. Yeah, so we have two get carpet bombed. And then the scariest thing for the O'Kings is that Eden didn't seem to see it coming. So, you know, it's sort of like, wait a minute, who ordered this? Because if Eden had done this, they would have like propaganda videos and a statement and none of that happens. There's like radio silence out of Eden. And that freaks them out more than anything else because they're like, wait, so who's in charge? Because they've been focusing and, you know, they know the basis there and that it might not be as belonging to Eden, more like Eden belongs to them. But I think it never, it doesn't hit them till that moment. Yeah. It's all, Eden has always been kind of the focus or the the big bad guy and the base has been just, it's kind of been an assumption that they're going to work with Eden, e- even as they've, you know, had rifts in the last couple of books and we've seen power shifting. I don't think it ever occurs to either the reader or the O'Kanes that we're, we will hit a point at which the base and Eden are no longer in communication or working necessarily together and which one is actually in power suddenly becomes a much more uh, complex game than they were even ready to start getting involved with within Eden. Right, because Eden's like the devil you know. That you know the counselors, you know the hypocrisy, you know how to play it, you can get into it. And they're suddenly like <laughs> they just because they're like all bets are off. Um because the, the the rules that they have about how these things should move forward suddenly aren't applicable. And and I mean and there's also the devastation of women and children have been slaughtered. And are the focus of this because yeah a lot of people knew to clear out of town and had you know including Sarah's and she just she, had, she had gone away um but there's still that that sort of like that that the emotional shock of all these people in this whole industry built around catering to this Eden were like nope we're you're 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 we're done and that's again sort of like wow they're, they're without their luxuries. They're, you really get a sense things are changing and are not going to be normal anymore. Yeah, and I think that's the other big moment for the O'Kanes. On top of the separation of Eden and the base, it's the realization that um, a lot of the assumptive things they thought were keeping them safe are probably not true. They always assumed that Eden, being the kind of hedonistic hypocrisy society that it is, would never destroy their source of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, basically. And yet, they have. And that clearly is sending some signals to Dallas and to all of the sectors. So we have, after that happens, we see relief efforts moving into two. We see the way that Sector 1 steps up and provides a lot of, like, 
humanitarian aid, essentially, and a lot of the, like, reconstruction effort. And we see them ready for war. We see a war council. We see the leaders meeting. We see them start to pool resources. And what's really interesting to me, and one of the things I really like most about this book, is we start to see some of the... um maybe not like what you like non-military preparations that the O'Kanes have already been making things like setting up the greenhouses and the farms and relationships with um, some other importers and distributors to prepare for the other side of war which is the human cost and human effort right because you know we've had many scenes where um, like in Beyond Innocence where like Jared can't imagine Dallas moving forward if any of his people died, right? Well, at the same time, they're preparing to enter a world where they know they're not all going to come out. Um, and so they're, they're you know, the, the spreading of uh, control, very much of like Dallas has given uh, three to six and Brent. Uh, he's basically like, I can't take on two. And and that real partnership that is being born out with him and one and Gideon and seeing each other and and sort of like there's just a, a lot of like we're not playing conquering barbarian anymore. This is about survival. We have to build hospitals. We have to think about how we get through this. Um, and everybody gets you know like I love that scene where sort of like Doc's like oh you're gonna need a hospital all right. And he's going to have lists upon lists. (laughs) Oh, and that's, and of course, that's the thing that eventually kind of gets Doc to uh, join the gang or at least consider very seriously think about taking ink and joining the gang. I think one of my favorite moments from around that same time is, is they do the, it's the classic, you know, we're, we're the underdogs and we're going to war kind of lying in the sand moment where Dallas gathers everyone and basically says, whether you have cuffs. party ever. I know whether you have cuffs or not, if you need to go, you need to go. You didn't get cuffs with the assumption that that would mean going to war. You know, he gives them all an out. And of course, nobody takes it. And of course, they basically slap him upside the head for even considering offering it because like, (laughs) what are they going to do? But it's just and it's a very um, unifying moment. That, of course, is the moment that we also learn that that Rachel, Cruz and Ace are uh, pregnant, that Rachel has conceived and is some early amount along in her pregnancy which of course also raises some concerns for their family unit in terms of um obviously they're not going to not go to war with dallas but obviously that now has even more weight and implication just like it does for flash and amira and so you really start to see like you were saying earlier that the okanes kind of know what war means but now there's even more on the line and there's even more family history and in a bigger family unit really kind of sacrificing himself and Dallas has to open his eyes and see that. So I just, I really love that particular scene. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a moment because some people are being drawn different directions. They like, they wouldn't dream of walking away, but they really wish somebody they love would walk away because then they wouldn't have to worry about them. Uh, And how much. Including Dallas and Lex, which is, I think is a really nice part of that is that they are both willing to admit that they, also wish the other person would just leave and not be around for this. Right. So there's not that blind allegiance. There's there there's people who are, who are, who are making this choice 
to die or to fight together because they believe in it. And they, they, there's no other way that they can live without with themselves, which is a contrast to what, I mean, like what Matt struggles with about wine. That there's so many people who are willing to die based on this religious belief, this devotion, adoration, which to Adrian really feels unearned um, because what has he, how has he earned it other than being the grandson of, of somebody who's a frankly terrible man? Uh, and so there's all these, uh, so like, why do people fight? Why do people, what, what do people feel is worth dying for? And the, and the definitions are different in different places. Um, in, in sector one, it's, and then we also will deal with when we get to the Gideon Writers books, the dying for the real family is a legit thing that they feel like they can die for. But here they're not dying for Dallas. They're, they're fighting for the family's vision. And they're fighting for that that new world. We, we, we start to hear more and more in these later books about the kind of characters who inspired by the hope of the new kind of life or world that the O'Kane seem to be building. And so a lot of, they're fighting for that, for that kind of radical hope and potential to survive past on this thing. And that's, you know, important too, but heavy for Dallas. You know, heavy is the head and stuff. And so we see the, in his kind of one-off character chapters throughout this book. I think we really see him continuing to learn to deal with that and kind of accept that um, because we get to basically the end of the book or right before the end of the book and really kind of our big moment is that there is an assassination attempt. They have they have thought that they were kind of flying under the radar, preparing for war, gathering their own secrets, and it turns out that somewhere along the line, They've got a leak. And so all of a sudden, in a very coordinated, at the same time effort, there's an attack on Gideon and on Jade and on Dallas and on Jim Jarrigan and Ryder. Um, I think and it's Jim so is the only one who pa- Jim is the only one who's actually killed. Right. Yes. yes. And the and the leaders from six and seven. But we don't really. Yeah. Yeah, they were already them. an issue. Uh, because they were already ineffective, but basically, yeah, and that is such a scary moment. Um, because basically, it's so they they almost killed Jim, they almost killed Gideon, um, and it was so coordinated that you feel the the uh, the real threat in that way. I think that Eden hadn't been as big of a threat because they were often almost buffoonish in their um pettiness and their hypocrisy that I feel like they were not nearly as scary as this moment of like they almost pulled this off our people you always yeah you always kind of felt like Dallas could get the drop on Eden I mean they've had close run-ins before and scary moments but in terms of who was actually quote-unquote like smarter you always felt like Dallas and the other sectors would be able to get the drop on Eden but this is the first indication that Either we've underestimated Eden or, as we come to learn, it's not actually Eden that's in charge anymore and your new enemy is way scarier and way better at their job. Right, right. And um, we haven't even talked about um, Ashwin. <laughs> we have not. We have not. I was going to save it a little bit, but yeah, let's go ahead. This is yeah, Ashwin. Because really... we can't talk about the base without talking about the I know, the you Mackay. really can. And uh, that's this is part of what, I mean, we've we've seen these super soldiers, the scary, scary people. If you scare Bren, if you scare Kruger, yeah. um, then you're if you scare the scary, scary guys, yeah. And, <laughs> and so, um, back 
and uh, Cruz and and Rachel and uh, Ace's book. There was a need for some restorative medicine, and there was a promise given to Ashlyn, and he comes to collect. <laughs> and and at first you think, oh, okay, so you just want me to bring her to a, a safe house? No, that's not the that's not the the favor. The favor is don't tell me. And that's where you're like, crap. Uh, you feel it when Cruz feels it because he realizes I just promised to not tell a guy who can kill me something he's going to really want. Uh, and so we get a little bit of backstory to these super soldiers that they are built in such a way that they imprint on people sometimes. They're a little um, unpredictable then when and possessive. And so it sort of sets the stakes really high and sort of also establishes that Cora is not quite what we thought of her. She's not just a, a, a base doctor. She has some sort of um, a special medical abilities beyond that of normal humans, including just sort of being drawn to need and people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's I think the main thing that we start to see because we've seen Cora, like you said, fixing Ace in Beyond Jealousy. She was the one who actually patched him up. But at this point, she has snuck off of the base and into Sector 1 and is working basically kind of undercover with the Rios family to provide medical care to um, the war wounded, to the survivors of the carpet bombings and to the various attacks that have been going on. And yeah, we, we see Ashwin come to collect his favor from Cruz and we really get the sense of um, not only the emotional detachment that the Makaya are bred to have, but the way that that can sometimes um, backfire or almost malfunction to the opposite degree. And Cruz has basically just promised to put himself the as the brick wall between <laughs> the bull and the, you know, red cape. And he has mm-hmm. promised that he's not going to tell, which will, of course, come uh, back later in even more books, both in uh, the next book and also in Ashwin's book. Um, but that is one of the, I think, more really important uh, secondary character kind of vignettes that we get to see that. And we also see the uh, beginnings of the relationship between Hawk and Jenny, who are the main couple of our next book and who are very adorable and just like the really kind of strangers sparks fly relationship between the two of them is nice to see get its roots in this book when so much else is also going on yeah there's so much negotiation that they have to do to figure out like are, are do we like each other is that okay that we like each other that oh my gosh you're noticing me noticing you you know uh, is that okay am i allowed to do that um so yeah there there that is a little spark of joy like you know we got our our, our quartet here having like soul loving and this directing of feelings and armor but then jenny and hawk just having like little flirty moments and like testing each other's uh interest level Mm -hmm. are there uh any kind of moving towards wrapping up Mm -hmm. are there any particular favorite moments or moments that you thought were maybe lacking a little bit more than some others well for me the moment that stood out to me this time around was maricela interrupting the second assassination attempt on Gideon. Um, because, um, you know, I've read her book in Ivan, and it was interesting to see her go back, being this sort of like just becoming a hostess, uh, her sort of like Adrian noticing how much she has grown, how much of a woman she is, 
and so you but she is still so innocent she she believes in the world she believes in the faith and having this moment where this trusted retainer um turns on her brother and nearly kills him and turns on her and that she has to shed blood um which is all like it's so there was it's, it's just this shining of like oh Maricela's gonna matter um and because she just gets it's just such a traumatic moment like her love for her brother it, it, at the same time sort of like this betrayal of home and safety and you know that that her arc is just beginning yeah and especially given that we've already established in this book how different it is for someone to take a life in sector one compared to how it is in sector four even just in terms of like the morality ethical religious kind of background this is the first time i've actually reread these later books in the series since i read all of the gideon writers books mm -hmm. so it is really interesting and really fascinating to see which pieces get kind of planted and then expanded upon in some of those later books and marcella has just always been a favorite and of mine so and i love her book so much yeah and it was interesting so we see deacon acting as um as bodyguard to jade and um just sort of just those little moments of people were like oh i'm gonna see you again <laughs> i think my favorite highlight i think my favorite highlights is just getting to see sector one i find religion like i'm not a very religious person but i find religion to be a fascinating thing uh, especially in terms of like cultural force and cultural progress and in the way that it's crafted in this book with this one sector being kind of this almost fundamentalist religious you know almost oligarchy and it's but it's still so young and it's like creation that that it's very interesting to me to see and to through Matt as a character work through what some of the issues with that would be how hard it would be to have your mom canonized when you knew her as a living person and how difficult it would be to deal with your own religious doubts when it's a member of your family who is the head of the church yeah the head of the church you know and so it's just always so interesting to me that time they spend in sector one like for me like i i grown up in the faith my husband's a pastor he's a chaplain now and um so i really love whenever we see religious characters that are allowed to have re legitimate faith um because you I, I think there's a big contrast to in eden where you have this sort of veneer faith and moralis moralism and you know it's corrupt and empty underneath it's and that's the really fascinating thing to me with what the Brian Donna do with sector one, because the belief of the people is genuine. Uh, the prophet might've been full of crap and, but the people believe him, him. And that's, and, and that's something that Gideon takes really seriously. That's something that Matt takes really seriously. He struggles with it, especially how it intersects with his own pain and grief, but he doesn't want to hurt people who, who truly believe. Because he knows the power that that belief has in their life. Um, so I think that's, I mean, that, that's a really uh, interesting tightrope for them to walk, I think. Um, and I, I mean, it's sort of like a cult growing into a faith. And when when does it belong to the Rios family anymore, in a sense? Because like they, they, we talk about how there's some uh, reforming that they do, like moving the, the penance from seven years to one year, because he feels it's exploitative, right? 
but he tried to take it away altogether and he couldn't because that's what the people felt they needed. They were feeling bereft without the opportunity to somehow clear the slate. Um, so it's really interesting to me to, and also to see like the things that, that bring from Catholicism that he plays with, you know, like the icons and the saints and the, uh, the offering, the ofrendas. Um, so there's all this faith stuff that I found really fascinating as somebody as a person of faith, uh, seeing how that is represented in the books. And also just the, that, the different levels of belief within the family. They're like for Adrian's very alienated to, to the faith, but Isabella is a true believer. Um, and you have Maricela who's going to now sort of be in this sort of awkward place where she believes in it, but no longer feels safe in it. Um, and Gideon, who has this weight of being in charge of the church and also feel like he's not worthy of being any anybody's God. Um, yeah, so there's so much happening in that. So I'm, I was thrilled when I heard that that's the world, that the, the sector that they were going to go right in because it, they, there's just so much to explore and actually something that very rarely gets explored in romance um, and even, you know, Sci you know, regular science fiction, because there's often this sort of like, we're beyond faith. And, um, oh, yes, that's that quaint thing that other people did, or it's negative. And the, the people, Gideon's people are a force for good in this world. They are selfless and really have a sense of generosity. And I mean, in the, in the books later, we'll discuss how some of that stuff gets naturally complicated. But there's a sense of like, a real like balance of trying to figure out when it's good, what is bad, how it can hurt, how it can save. And I think it's really important. And that's, I was also so excited when I realized that that, that sector one was the sector we were going to get to spend so much more time in. And I think it's really interesting and important because so much of the po this kind of like post-apocalyptic e-world building, like, the idea of and the importance of religion in building whatever a next world would be after a tragedy like that is, like you said, something that I feel like doesn't get fully explored in a lot of science fiction just in general, let alone SFF romance, mm -hmm. just in terms of, you know, you, we talk about replacing food. We talk about technological advances. We talk about what all of those things are, but we don't necessarily stop to realize or to understand that religion has always been a thing and odds are will always be a thing in whatever iteration or capacity so the importance of that and the need for people to have that and the way that fits into the rest of the world that you build is really well done and like you said it's a it's hard to do and I think they walk the tightrope really well in terms of being willing to and able to question the kind of building of religion through various characters while never at any point in time mocking it or not taking it seriously or not giving it the reverence it deserves because like you're saying even like Gideon and Mad and probably now Maricela some of our people who are more on the questioning side or more on the fence never discount the importance of it to the lives of the people living it and to the world it exists in and I guess for me like somebody who's been in ministry been in behind the scenes and can see that you know when you when you're in that side of things, you you do see the dark side so much more and the the striving and the effort. And, you know, they always talk about like the, the worst Christians are the 
the pastor's kids because they see all the bad side, you know, like you know, dad's up on the, and my husband's a pastor's kid on top of becoming a pastor. So, so I really identified with the sort of behind the scenes family, like the people who put on religion and, and how it can both be very genuine and also very strained. Um, and so, yeah, I really respected, like, I was like, wow, you're in my head here. Um, which I rarely, rarely get to see in, in romance. Wow. Yes, friends. So much going on. <laughs> so, so much going on. I feel like we've talked for almost an hour and still like barely scratched the surface on all the different things happening in this book. But we cannot actually talk forever about this particular book. So looking forward to our next episode. We will be back in a couple of weeks to do Beyond Ecstasy. This is the next. From here on out, we are done with the novellas. We are we have two more books. They are both full-length books. And so this is the story of Hawk and Jenny. Hawk is from, I believe, Sector 6? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, on the he's, borders he's of a, Sector 6, yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a farmer's farmer's kid he's a farmer's boy who's been working with the O'Kanes to really cement a relationship so that his family and his farm and the work that they do can kind of intersect with the work that the O'Kanes are doing and of course on one of his trips to the compound he meets Jenny Jenny who we have last seen kind of embroiled with Alex and Dallas in a way that she's just kind of recently left and is still dealing with the fallout from so it's it's their book. We get to see them get to fall in love with each other as war continues to happen behind them because still there's war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so much is still happening. Um, but yeah, so we will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about that. Uh, do you want to go ahead and let them know where they can find us in the meantime, Anna? Yeah, you can find us at beyondthesectors.com and beyondsectors on Twitter. Wonderful. I am on Twitter as an outlaw life. And I'm on Twitter as Anna Koki. All right, friends, until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and we will see you beyond the sectors. Bye.